Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. And we're continuing our series called His Story, sort of God's Story, uh, through the Old Testament. Today I've entitled our message, The Path to Lordship. In an article for Decision Magazine, Samuel Camelson illustrates the difficulty of submission, submitting our lives to Jesus through a Christian folk story from South India. There are several versions of it, but here it opens with a young boy who loved to play marbles. Now this goes back a ways, and I don't know, if do marbles still really exist in grade school anymore? No. How many of you played marbles when you were little? All right, so I'm not alone. I remember that just vaguely. Anyway, here's this little boy who loved to play marbles, just vaguely. It was only 30 years ago. I'm 42. All right, he regularly walked through the neighborhood with a pocket full of his best marbles, hoping to find opponents to play against. And one marble in particular, his special blue marble, had won him many matches. During one walk, he encountered a young girl who was eating a bag of chocolate candy. Though the boy's first love was marbles, he had a weakness for chocolates. And as he stood there interacting with this young lady, his salivary glands and the rumbling in his stomach became uncontrollable. And he thought to myself, I have got to get my hands on her chocolates. Concocting a plan, he asked the girl, how about I give you all these marbles for all of those chocolates? And she replied, sounds fair to me. So he put his hand in his pocket, searching for that distinguishing crack on the surface of the blue marble. And once he identified the blue marble with his fingertip, he pushed it to the bottom of his pocket and pulled out all the other marbles, but kept the one. As he handed the marbles to the girl in exchange for her chocolates, the boy thought his plan was a success. He got everything she had, kept his one special marble, and he turned to walk away. And as he began to eat the candy, he suddenly turned to the girl and asked, hey, did you give me all the chocolates? Our fallen nature persuades us to posture ourselves in the same deceptive and defiant way as that boy in the story. We want everything God has to offer. We want to have a secure sense of God's presence. We want all our prayers to be answered. We want to feel close to Jesus. We want to flourish in the riches of God's glory. We want it all, but we're unwilling to give up truly everything for it. Many times, there's a blue marble in our lives that we seem unwilling to offer to the control of Christ. And until we fully subjugate ourselves to God's will, our participation in God's kingdom, what God wants for us, how God can use us, is limited, self-limited. God wants all of our devotion, everything. He asks for total commitment. He always has. Ray Ortland put it, puts it this way. You and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. Imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. And a committee sits around the table of your heart. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others all sitting at that table. 
The committee is always arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. And we tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. But the truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. That kind of person can accept Jesus in two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee, along with our other six selves, give him a vote too. But then he becomes just one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working as is. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you, I'm your responsibility now, run my life for me. Because accepting Christ is not just adding him, it's subtracting the idols, it's subtracting the other loyalties. Tim Keller compares it to what he calls a life quake. When a great big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. When a big man goes onto thin ice, there's an ice quake. When Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, there's a life quake. Everything is reordered. If he was a guru, if he was a great man, if he was a teacher, even if he was the genie of a lamp, there'd be some limits on his rights over you. But if he's God, you cannot relate to him at all and retain anything in your life that's a non-negotiable. Anything, any view, any conviction, any idea, any behavior, any relationship, he gets to change it. He may not change it, but at the beginning of the relationship, you have to say, in everything, he must have the supremacy. Jesus Christ put it this way. No man can serve two masters. He also said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, there's a good chance you're going to end up in the same situation I'm going to end up in. I'm going to die. You're likely to die. You literally signed up into a movement known for martyrdom. We are in the total commitment camp. That's what Christianity is. When, when often we describe what it means to be a Christian, I say there's three things, three aspects to faith. We believe, sort of intellectually, that Jesus is the Son of God. We trust that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. Those are two aspects of faith. But the third one, and an essential ingredient, is his lordship. When we sign up to follow Jesus, we are acknowledging that he has the right to be the Lord of our lives. Doesn't mean we change instantly, but we're signing up for change. We're signing up for his lordship. And we're talking about that third aspect today. We acknowledge Christ's lordship and we become Christians. But in reality, it's often more aspirational than it is reality. It's like, I, I want to get there. I want to get to a place where Jesus is Lord of my life. Well, he is, but we may not act like it yet. God wants it to be a reality. One person once said, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. So in your journey and mine, God is trying to get you to that point of lordship. And today, we explore how he did it in the life of Jacob. 
I want you to read this passage with me. It's Genesis 32. Now, I've skipped over a couple of chapters, and if you want to read through Genesis along with the series, just always read ahead a little bit. Uh, The reality is I'm going to cover these chapters in the sermon. I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to tell the stories, not in great detail. But today we're going to look at chapter 32 in Genesis and beginning in verse 22. Chapter 32, verse 22, it's on page 25 in the Bible near you. Page 25, verse 22. Now he, Jacob, arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream. Then he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, this is the man, which we eventually know as an angel or God himself, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, what is it uh, that you, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in that place. Two points I want to walk through here, and in fact, you're going to get a little concerned, because the first point is 80% of the sermon, all right? So when it's 22, and we're still on the first point, you're going to be nervous. But I have a football game I want to watch at home, too, so don't be nervous. We'll be out of here at a decent time. God used Jacob's greatest fault as a point of entry for his lordship. God used what Jacob struggled with as a point of entry for his lordship. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this. Now, if you're new here, or if you've been gone for a few weeks, enjoying the beautiful weather, I want to give you just a little background where we're at. So the series is his story, so lessons from God's history with the human family. We talked about Adam and Eve, first man, some of those early stories. We went through the Genesis flood, uh, talked about that for a few weeks. We went through Babel where peoples were dispersed across the globe. And then we get to a unique part of the Bible. Starting in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through the end of the Old Testament, the Bible is about Israel. Because God was going to turn a man, Abraham, into a nation, Israel. So Genesis, through the end of the Old Testament, is about Israel. Genesis 12 through 50 is about how Abraham became a clan that became a nation. Because when you open the book of Exodus, the second book, Israel is a nation of a couple million people. So from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, it's Abraham becoming a small nation, which becomes this nation that God rescues from slavery in Egypt. So he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. You're going to be a blessing to the world. That nation is ultimately, through later promises we see very clearly, going to give us the God-man, uh, Jesus. It's going to come, he's going to come through Israel. And the stories in Genesis follow the descendants of this promise. 
So it starts with Abraham, and then the stories are about his descendants until we end up with this small nation. So Abraham becomes a clan that becomes a nation. That's Genesis. And today we're talking about Jacob. He's a couple of generations after Abraham. Abraham, his, his grandfather. So Jacob is the one who's going to carry the role of leader of the clan until it becomes a nation. He's the progenitor, the ancestor of Messiah or Jesus. He's a carrier of this blessing to the world. He's the man who will become a nation. Abraham was, then Isaac, now Jacob. At the moment we find Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, he is in an impending crisis. Things are not good. His life is at risk. He is running from one dangerous relationship that is dangerous because of his character. That's why it's dangerous. He's kind of running for his life from one relationship towards another relationship that he has also messed up years before that's so bad he could get killed on that end. So he's literally running from one country into another country, and he's got a couple of dudes on both ends of this journey that hate his guts and want to kill him. So he fears for his life. He fears for his life so much that as he comes out of modern-day Turkey or from Haran, where he went because he was running from his brother, he went 700 kilometers north. Now he's leaving that area because he's running from his father-in-law, who now doesn't like him. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's coming back into Israel, and he so fears for his life that right before this, he divides his vast flocks and people into two groups, because he reasons, if one group is slaughtered by my brother's army, the other will survive. He sent his wives and children across a river, the Jabbok. It's a stream that flows into the Jordan River in the Jordan Valley. He had already given orders to many of his servants to sort of send massive gifts, you know, sheep, goats, cattle, camels, massive gifts one wave at a time to his brother Esau, who is headed towards him with a 400-person small army. Now, why is he doing that? Because Esau's last words about Jacob, probably about 20 years earlier, were, I'm going to kill him. And frankly, I'd kind of be on Esau's side in this. So Esau's coming with a small army. So Jacob finds himself wanting to be alone. He's placed his wives and children across the Jabbok, which is a stream going into the Jordan. He's probably on the east side of the Jordan River. This fed the Jordan River. It's a beautiful part of the valley. This is kind of, I believe, halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, somewhere in there in the Jordan Valley, a beautiful part of Israel. And he thinks he's alone. His brother is not too far away, sort of conquering a part of the territory near there that he's going to occupy. He's got a small army. Of course, Jacob is assuming that there's ill intent there. A man approaches him. It's dark. I don't know if he's built his fire yet. Maybe there's some moonlight or some starlight, but a man approaches him somewhat in the dark. He doesn't identify himself, and Joseph is in survival mode. He's just divided up all the people he has and all of his cattle and sheep and oxen. He's divided them up so as if one group gets killed, the others will survive. He sent his family away from him, and a man comes at him in the dark. So what does Joseph do? What would you do? He confronts the man in his camp, and they're quickly on the ground in basically man-on-man -man combat. 
And if I'm Joseph, and the Bible doesn't give us a lot about this, so again, I'm interposing a few thoughts here. I'm assuming, if I'm Joseph, that this is likely somebody from Esau's camp. It's probably an assassin. Who else would it be? He's got his brother's army coming towards him. His last words were, I'm going to kill Jacob. Jacob is absolutely paranoid because he's created enemies wherever he's gone. Probably assumes it's one of Esau's men. And this fight lasts it seems for hours and hours, which is really fascinating because no fight lasts for hours. I want you to think about that, all right? Now, I'm not saying this is a good thing about me, but I do watch some MMA, and I do enjoy it. And I'm not saying there'll be MMA in heaven. There might be because in heaven nobody will get hurt. But if you ever watch like hand, you know, man on man or woman on woman, there's female MMA, it's pretty fascinating. If you ever watch that kind of combat where kicking and hitting and choking, it's all legal. An MMA fight is usually three periods of five minutes, and in some championship fights, five periods of five minutes with a rest time in between. Fights don't last long because of the exertion required. No fight lasts long. If you had a scrap on the playground when you were a little kid, now maybe Canadians didn't do that in grade school, but those American kids do that. Now, your kids are better. Actually, Didi and I have observed that. Your kids actually are better behaved than American kids. We're not making that up. There is a clear difference. Even the ones who don't know Jesus are better than the ones south that do know Jesus. And we're trying to figure this out. We're not sure. We're not making this up. It's real. Something in the culture. Anyway, where was I? All right. So if you ever had a scrap when you were a little kid on the playground, you know they don't last long. You're exhausted in a short period of time. And so this is going on likely for hours. And few words are given of the account. So we're not sure exactly what's said, exactly what happens. But sometime in this marathon match in which Jacob is performing admirably, he no longer felt fear. He starts out thinking perhaps Esau has sent somebody to kill him. But somehow in this multiple hour match, he no longer felt fear and he knew that it was either an angel representing God or it was God himself like Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. And I would argue that's very likely because he names the place I've seen God face to face, not I've seen an angel. So the most literal, normal sense here would be he's wrestling with Jesus and he knew, once he recognized that this was a divine appointment, that he had a chance to win with God in person. To know for sure where he stood with God. Because his whole life he's been this insecure twin who's been manipulating and lying to get his way through life. Now he's got God in his grasp and he's thinking, I am not going to let him go until I get what I need from him. And he wouldn't quit. And he went beyond any fight he'd ever been in in his life. And he's hanging on to God. Maybe he's got him in a chokehold. I don't know. And if he does, Jesus is letting that happen, of course. And he's saying, bless me. Bless me. I am not going to let you go until you bless me. Until I know that we're right. So then Jesus pulls the whole miracle thing, which he can do. Just touched his hip and miraculously put it out of joint, dislocated it, which is painful. Didn't stop Jacob. 
Bless me. I am not letting you go. And it was a significant moment for Jacob in his spiritual life. At that point, God said something God shouldn't say. God asked a question he knew the answer to. Now, Jesus did that a lot too. But this was kind of a dumb question, which Jesus doesn't do. But in this situation, he did. What's your name? He's come from heaven or sent an angel from heaven, but I'm going to assume it is God himself. The text seems to indicate. He's come from heaven. He's made this trip from heaven to be in this place with the clan leader that will carry the message of salvation to the whole world, the man that will become a nation, the man that will give us Jesus eventually. He is with him. He's made this extraterrestrial move. Is he just checking to make sure he got it right? What's your name? Am I wrestling with the wrong guy? No, he knows. But he did it to identify what Jacob has been and who he has been his whole life because Jacob's name was an identification of his character. And he wanted Jacob to say it and he wanted Jacob to own it. Jacob, up until this point, is an entirely unethical scoundrel. He was actually named Jacob or Jacob before birth. And that means something. Heel grabber, deceiver, supplanter, sort of, uh, you know, a huckster, somebody who will trick you, somebody who will swindle you. And he lived up to it constantly. That's why God wants him to say his name. You want me to bless you? We're going to first deal with what you are and who you have been. That's why God asked for his name. Now, before he's born, as you recall, Mom has twins in her, in her womb, and they're kind of tossling around a lot. And, uh, you know, especially when she had caffeine, keeps them up at night. And so she's got these twins in her room, and she goes to God and asks, what's going on? There's like a war inside of me. And God said, you have twins. And you're going to see that at the ultrasound that you get in Beersheba in a couple weeks. And, and he said, but the older is going to serve the younger. There's going to be an unusual relationship here. The older twin will serve the younger. And now here is the series of illustrations that demonstrate Jacob's struggle to believe that promise. Some of them we've talked about, some of them we haven't. Jacob would have been told this by his mother. Jacob, you're going to be the leader of the clan. You're not the firstborn, but God told me. But his dad preferred his older brother. So all his life he knew, mom may say that God said, I'm going to be the leader of the clan, but daddy loves Esau, and that's very clear, so I don't see that happening. And so he tried to take it for himself. He never learned to trust God. So we see it even in his birth. Now this is sort of prophetic. God said, you know, the older's going to serve the younger, and he's named Jacob, coming right out of the, out of the womb, because this battle starts happening. I, the midwife must have reported this because we've got some stuff in the scriptures that is pretty fascinating. Somebody's in the birthing room. Esau comes out. He's hairy. So they call him Esau, which means hairy. So the people in the Bible were called hairy. Isn't that interesting? Name has kind of passed away in the last 40 years. Hairy. Esau's named Harry. He comes out, and guess what's going on when he's almost out? There's the umbilical cord, and there's Jacob's hand hanging on to him. Like, you are not getting out before me. 
He's called heel grabber, Jacob, because he is grabbing his brother's heel in the birthing room. It started there and it never ended. So the name heel grabber. And then there's the story we talked about a few weeks ago, the birthright. There are a couple of sort of Jewish customs that you would give to typically your eldest son. One would be the birthright, the leadership in the family. The other would be the blessing, which was probably sort of a reiteration of the birthright and possibly uh, also some economic, like a double portion of the inheritance. We're not sure how to separate these two, but the birthright at a minimum was the leadership in the clan. When they were young men, Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. Esau was a daddy's boy. Esau liked to hunt. And, and he came back from a hunt one time. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And he's starving. And all he cares about sort of are his, his own appetites. He's presented that way in Scripture. He's kind of a worldly guy. He just cares about himself and what he wants at this moment. He comes in from hunting. Jacob's got some lentil stew on the stove. And Esau says, get me some of that stew. I'm starving. And Jacob says, you want it? I'll give you some stew for your birthright. All right, so a bowl of red lentil stew for your right to be the leader of the clan that becomes God's people that gives us a savior. That doesn't seem like a fair exchange in the balance of issues. But Esau is a worldly man. He doesn't care about the spiritual leadership in the clan. He doesn't care about the true God. When he gets married, he marries a couple of women from the tribes around there that don't follow the true God. He never cared about God. He doesn't care about Grandpa Abraham who followed the true God. Those old wives' tales Abraham told. He doesn't care about that. So he said, what good is the birthright to me if I'm starving to death? Sure. So he gets the stew. And the Bible says Esau despised his birthright. And it was about Esau there, but it's also about Jacob because Jacob in that story was Jacob. He was a deceiver, a supplanter, somebody trying to get his way. He never trusted God. Then we have the story we talked about just a week or so ago, the blessing. Isaac is old and blind. Isaac is his dad. He's old and blind. He's ready to bless Esau. This second sort of uh, ceremony that would happen in a family, the birthright and the blessing. The birthright you got because of your birth order, typically. But now he's going to get this blessing that you would give, if you're an old man, you'd give it to your eldest son upon your death. He's supposed to give it to Jacob because Jacob is supposed to be the leader of the clan according to God. But Isaac's not listening to that. And he's not listening to what God said to his wife. So he says to his eldest son, I want you to go hunt some game, bring it back, you know, butcher it the way you butcher it and put those special spices on it that you get at Cabela's or Bass Pro Shops, just the way I like it, you know, and, and put it on the grill and we're gonna have that together and then I'm gonna give you the blessing. Rebecca overhears this conversation. She says to Jacob, we're gonna, we're gonna steal this blessing. We're gonna trick dad, he's blind. So Esau goes hunting and Rebekah says, we're going to kill a couple lambs or goats, which they do. We're going to butcher them. We're going to cook them the way your brother cooks them. Jacob says, this isn't going to work. I mean, Esau is hairy. His name is Harry. I'm not hairy. I got smooth skin, mom. You know, I'm trying to make the cover of GQ. All right, Esau's not. She says, we gotta, we'll solve that problem. So she takes the animal skin, she puts him on her arm, she, on his arm, she puts him on his neck, she gives him Esau's robe, which smelled like sort of like Old Spice, the original, kind of a manly kind of smell. And they get him smelling like the brother and feeling like the brother. Dad is blind, he goes in, and dad suspects it's Jacob, and Jacob flat out lies to him. No, I'm Esau. Brings him the game, they eat together, and Jacob gets the blessing. It's Jacob being Jacob. 
It's just Jacob being the heel grabber, the supplanter, the deceiver, the lying, conniving, no good, fill in the blank, whatever you think. That was Jacob. It's who he is. He's not a good man. Esau gets back after Jacob's been blessed, and his thought is, I am going to kill him. And he meant it, and I don't blame him. Jacob flees. Now, what we haven't preached on, Jacob flees 700 miles north to Haran, back to modern-day Turkey by the Euphrates River. So he goes up out of Israel, or he crosses and goes around the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Don't know how he made the trip. But he goes up out of Israel into modern-day Turkey by the Euphrates River. They've got some relatives from the clan way back there, from where Abraham lived before he came down into Israel sometime before. So he said, we want you to go there. We don't want you to marry one of the girls from the neighboring youth groups here. They don't believe in the true God. We want you to go back and marry somebody from our relatives. So he was sent to his mom's father in that clan. So he's leaving because his brother's going to kill him, but his parents say, why don't you go and get a wife at the same time? Well, Jacob's thinking, that's true. I don't have a wife. We'll do that. Kind of dual purpose trip. So he goes up to Haran. He makes this 400 plus mile, 700 kilometer trip to save his life and to find a wife. And as he gets there, you know, he's pretty impressionable and he meets this woman right away by a well in the territory where Laban lived. And she is beautiful. And he like falls for her right away, finds out she's a relative. I mean, the Bible says he kissed her, which I think would be a little unusual first glance in that culture. But he goes and he smacks her. By that I mean kissed her, nuts. And he helps her to water her father's flocks. And evidently there's like a big disc on the well that has a hole in it, and, and he's strong enough to move that disc to show off to Rachel, you know, or to how, how strong he is, and, and he moves that, and they water them, and then it was love at first sight. She brings him home to daddy. She's got a sister, Leah, who is actually, by the way, a much better choice, who God really favored over Rachel significantly. Rachel's not really a follower of the true God the way you would expect, and you see that in the text. She steals her father's false gods when she makes the trip out of that country with her new husband here. But, so she's not really that good of a woman. Her sister Leah is a really good gal. But Isaac falls in love with Rachel. Laban strikes a deal with him. His future father-in-law and his uncle says, seven years for my daughter. He works seven years, you can have her. And the Bible says he was in love so much it seemed like just a few days. I don't, that doesn't make sense to me because to me it would seem like he's in love so much the seven years felt like an eternity. But anyway, the Bible says it felt like just a few days. Lucky him. The time flew by. The wedding feast came. You know, and that's, a, that's, an, that's an ancient culture in the Middle East, very conservative with women's dress. Jacob enters the bedchamber to his veiled, veiled bride in a dark tent. Veiled bride, dark tent. And he knows his wife. Until the next morning when he realizes she has been substituted by Laban 
with the other sister. Laban kept Rachel out of the tent and substituted Leah. He has slept with the wrong woman. He goes back to confront his father-in-law who says, you know, in our culture, we kind of don't marry off the young one before the older one, so that's what you get. Jacob has been Jacobed. That's why the story's in the text. Jacob has gotten what Jacob does. He's gotten a dose of himself in his father-in-law who is also a nasty, deceptive, lying, fill-in-the-blank guy. None of them are good human beings in these stories. They, they eventually become so. So obviously he's furious, but now what has he got? Dad's still got the other woman. That's the one he really loves. And also then this starts this massive feud between these two women who both become his wives and a lot of pain and hurt. So Laban says, all right, I'll give you the one you really wanted for another seven years. And Jacob agrees. And the deception continues because now Jacob is determined to get payback on daddy. So Jacob has a wealth plan. Laban's kind of, you know, moving up in the world a little bit. Jacob never forgot his deception, so Laban convinced him to stay even after that seven years. He had prospered under Jacob's ranching abilities. Jacob was a good shepherd. He knew how to breed livestock. And now Laban has become wealthy because of this son-in-law. So Jacob agrees after the 14 years, I'll stick around because actually back home my brother wants to kill me anyway. So I'll stick around. And he made an interesting wage deal. He said, I want out of all your flocks just the black sheep and the spotted and striped lambs. Most sheep aren't black, and most, uh, I should say most goats are not spotted or striped. So he's saying, I'll just take all the oddballs out of the flock. And Laban is thinking, what a deal for me, because that's not most of the sheep. So Laban tries to outsmart Jacob. He took out all the black sheep right away, and all the spotted or striped uh, goats took them all out of the herds, and he sent them away with his son so they couldn't interbreed with those that had like just one color fur or coats. Jacob wouldn't be able to interbreed the herd. His flocks would be limited. But Jacob had other plans. And this is, what, this is kind of tricky because I've read what people think this means and we're not sure. Okay, just let's be honest, we're not sure. But Jacob had a breeding plan. And here's what he did. He took a bunch of branches, twigs, and he peeled some of the bark off of them. We're not exactly sure what's going on. He cart the bark back so they look kind of striped. And he put them by the watering troughs and put some of them in the watering troughs. We're not sure exactly what's going on here because this is really tricky to interpret and we don't have as many words in Scripture as we'd like. But it's probably one of three things. There might have been a superstition that eating striped branches led to striped goats. I don't know why somebody working around cattle or animals would think something like that, but it might have been a superstition that God just cooperated with. Don't think that's what's going on. I've read Ken Ham on this. He said they actually have studied the trees that Jacob put down by these watering troughs and their branches, and if they eat them, it actually medicinally does increase breeding success at like a high rate, which is kind of fascinating. Or it's just some kind of manipulation. The sticks, which would be good food in a very arid area if they're little twigs, the sticks kept the flocks at the watering hole and then Jacob controlled which males, which rams went in and bred them by keeping them there at the watering hole. And he basically did controlled breeding. 
But eventually what he developed out of that was a flock of black sheep that was massive and a flock of spotted goats. And he became extremely wealthy and his father-in-law less and less so. Laban's son saw this and they grew hostile. Jacob said to them, your dad changed my wages 10 times. Laban just kept trying to redo the deal and get a better situation. Jacob outsmarted him. And it got to the point that Jacob recognized, I'm in danger, I gotta get out of here. I'm gonna take my wives and I'm leaving. I'm going back to my other country where my brother wants to kill me. Says his father-in-law chased him for seven days and found him and God warned him, don't hurt him. Don't hurt your son-in-law. They made a treaty there. But Jacob was Jacob. Sneaky, deceptive, lying, fill in the blank. Now Jacob has run from Laban, his father-in-law, back toward the region his brother is in with a small army of 400 men. And his last words were, I'm gonna kill him. Now his father-in-law feels like he's been defrauded. He's a victim of his own deception. He's by the edge of this little stream, by the edge of the Jordan. Everyone hates him, and he's completely earned it. He has had God's promise of blessing that God gave to his mom, and instead he manipulated a stolen birthright from his brother. He deceived his father to get the blessing. He ran for his life from his brother. He goes to a new country, and then he gets deceived by his father-in-law. He deceives his father-in-law. Now he has to run from his father-in-law. This is just like a soap opera of dysfunction. And he's got God in a grip. And he's like, I don't want to live this way anymore. And God wants to make a point. Who are you? Who are you? Let's talk about that. What's your name? Not like I don't know, but let's just get it out there. Because once you own what you are, I have a chance to change you. You're a lying, deceptive, dishonest Jacob. I want to be blessed. Then you can't be Jacob anymore. I'm Jacob. That's who I am. God is just saying, own it. Confess it. What's your name? And when Jacob owns it, God said, you will be now called Israel, which means you've struggled with God and have prevailed. God had to get Jacob to own who he was before he could rename him. And he left him crippled, but changed. Second point, and I said you'd be worried right now. I've only got that much. It's going to be good. It's going to be okay. Lunch will not burn. Jacob recognized his longing for blessing. Could only be satisfied by God. You know, it's our faults that God uses us that God uses. It's our faults. It's our weak points that God uses to show us our futility without him. They, they drag us into places where only God can rescue us. And, and Jacob recognized that. I, I just need God in my life. I've had my life my way and it's not worked. And when Jacob wrestled with God, he wouldn't let him go. He had won every one of his manipulative ventures just about. But it created no peace, no satisfaction, no security. It made him run for his own life. God was never part of the promise or the, pro, uh, the process. God wanted to bless him. Jacob never let it happen because he got in the way all the time. And he finally recognizes as he's got God in a headlock. I want what only you can give me. I've done this my way. He knew he needed him. 
Lordship is the path to freedom. We look at lordship as a loss of our autonomy. We're giving up things that we don't want to give up. But it is the path to freedom because we're finally giving ourselves to God and saying, I want to live the life that you intended because I believe when I do, I'm getting my best possible life. Therefore, when he is Lord, we don't lose anything. We have greater confidence because now we know God's in charge. He's got my best life. Whatever it is, not going to be perfect, but he's got my best life in mind, and I can get that from him. God in charge is better than Jacob in charge, and God in charge is better than you or me in charge. So Jacob gave up his blue marble. He gave up his blue marble. He didn't hold anything back, and he was renamed Israel. You have striven with God and have overcome. A couple apps as we close. First, the path to lordship begins with a commitment to follow Jesus. You know, when we make an initial commitment to Christ, we're acknowledging lordship. We're acknowledging that he has the right to be the lord of our lives. Now, it starts there, and then eventually we do other things, but it starts there. And maybe you're here today, and that's not a commitment that you've ever made. Maybe you've never had a point where you've really kind of said, I want to follow Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died for me, but I've never really said, I'm committed to following you. You have the right to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to put a simple prayer on the screen, and if you've never made that commitment, and you're interested in doing that, I would just encourage you to pray this in your heart of hearts as I say it out loud. Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I believe you are the Son of God. And I trust that your death on the cross paid the penalty for my sins. I need your forgiveness. And I acknowledge your right to be the Lord of my life. Come into my life as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. In Jesus' name. Now there's nothing magical about those words except they contain what the New Testament talks about as it relates to faith in Jesus Christ. Those simple elements of believing Jesus is the Son of God. I need the forgiveness that he provides in the cross. And I've signed up for his lordship. And finally, the path to lordship, it continues with moments of surrender as Jesus occupies more room in our hearts. Those corners of our hearts that we have never given up. Those board members in our hearts that need to be fired, to use that earlier illustration. The blue marble that we've kept in our pocket. Tim Keller once said that in a 1970 Sunday school class, a teacher changed his life with this illustration. Teacher said, let's assume the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper. If that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. That's how great God is. Then Keller's teacher said, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. Yet Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. That's what Colossians 3 says. Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. Then the teacher said, now, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? 
Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? What's your blue marble? What are your issues? What would God name you if your character was your name? What's the corner of your life that's outside of Jesus' control? Give it up. Surrender to his lordship. Take another step towards the life, the best life that you can live. Submit it to God. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Jacob. And in Jacob, we see ourselves. He's an imperfect guy. He's got some issues, and they just keep resurfacing over and over. He might have had other faults, but this one issue just seems to dominate his life, and you had to break him of it for him to become the person that you want him to be. And we're no different. We all have a thing or a couple of things that just keep us from full surrender. And I pray that you would help them to to change, help those things to go away, help us to submit to your lordship and get the life that we were intended to live. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.